This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. The Toronto Police Service has made a disturbing admission. Officers use secret facial recognition technology from Clearview AI to dig up sensitive personal information based on nothing more than photos. They were ordered to stop using the controversial tool last week, but just last month, the police denied using it at all. Several privacy watchdogs are launching a joint investigation into the creators of a controversial facial recognition technology. Clearview AI is accused of collecting billions of images of people and making them available to customers, including law enforcement. The purpose? To allow authorities to identify individuals. Facial recognition technologies have attracted mounting attention in recent weeks led by a New York Times report on Clearview AI that was soon followed by revelations of police use of the service in multiple Canadian cities. In fact, just after recording the interview for this podcast, there were revelations that the Clearview AI service has been used in Canada by an even wider array of police forces, retailers, insurance investigators, and others than was previously imagined. In some cases, those organizations had denied using the service. There are now multiple privacy commissioner investigations into the situation. To examine the concerns associated with facial recognition technologies and what we should do about it, I'm joined on the podcast this week by Nazma Ahmed, a technologist and community organizer that works within the intersections of social justice, technology, and policy. She recently published an op-ed in the Globe and Mail with McGill's Taylor Owen that calls for a pause on the technology. Nazma is currently the director of the Digital Justice Lab, which is based in Toronto. Nazma, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Okay, it's a pleasure. And, you know, you recently wrote together with Taylor Owen a really interesting piece on facial recognition technologies. And that, given the kinds of uh, news that we've seen around this issue, the, obviously the piece was really timely and yeah. I think sparks uh, has sparked a lot of discussion. Now, we know, of course, that, that there has been growing attention on the issue. We had coincidence or not, a lot of police forces in Canada uh, announced that they have been using some of these technologies, and and some of this, of course, comes from a New York Times story around Clearview AI that attracted a lot of attention. So why don't we we start by asking a question of, do you have a sense of just how much facial facial recognition technologies are being used, perhaps first by government and police forces? Yeah, and so I think that the facial recognition technology, I would say in the North American context, has really been bubbling up the last, let's say, two to three years. And one thing that we've been seeing, especially in the United States, has been uh, really a push for a ban, um, a ban within public services. So as people have noticed that facial recognition technologies were being used within police forces, but also within social services, uh, there's been a pretty massive push of uh, pausing or banning. And I think it's important to recognize the reason why a lot of people ask for the pause and the ban is because a lot of the facial recognition technology doesn't really work super well. Uh, So whether it be how it captures the face, so like the biases that come from darker skins, um, also just the privacy issue of like where the images come from. And I think Clearview um, and the story in the New York Times 
highlighted uh, a really massive question about just consent and photos uh, because that database had over a billion photos um, and that's how it allowed its accuracy to be super high. Um, and you know the story out of Clearview AI was the fact that their target market was the police force. Um, and what kind of came out of Canadian reporters kind of looking into it is that actually uh, Canadian police forces were testing uh, Clearview, um, experimenting with it in different areas. But it's important to note that facial recognition technology had been used prior to Clearview AI. Um, and so they, the, for example, the Toronto police already had budgeted $400,000 each year, I think it's the last almost over five years or six years, um, using facial recognition, facial recognition technology. Was it as good possibly as the Clearview AI? Probably not, but they have been using it. And I think, you know, I, as I was, um, I've always been on the component of banning facial recognition technology given the uh, concerns around biases, et cetera. But facial recognition technology has been used uh, for, for example, passport identification uh, to see if there's fraud uh, in casinos all across the country uh, to also detect uh, fraud or people who have committed crimes before. Um, it's been used by police forces uh, to detect uh, through videos. A really good example, actually, the OPC, the Office of the Privacy Commissioner, highlighted this example, uh, was uh, the January 2011 Vancouver riots, where they were trying to identify uh, the people who were causing harm. And uh, one of, I think it was the insurance board at the time, wanted to share, uh, like, wanted to share video content and facial recognition technology to support, um, use like their information to support the Vancouver police in identifying. And then it was. Actually, Actually share that they're not allowed to do that they're only allowed to use it for their own corporate purposes right and so um, this has been a problem but I think um, an OPC has actually highlighted it as an issue since like you know over 15 years ago uh, but we're seeing right now that the public concern is bigger uh, and that it's being used uh, by not only police forces but also different services in the country okay so there's a lot to unpack there yeah. why, don't, why don't we go through a, no, a number of those issues Let, let's start by I just want to emphasize your point just now now that there, this isn't just a police force issue. This is a, an issue where these kinds of technologies are used by private sector companies, are mm -hmm. used by government services companies. It's the the potential use cases for facial recognition technologies sounds incredibly broad. Yeah, and and it's uh, you know it's it's so broad that it's actually kind of hard for us to capture what the landscape is, right? Because facial recognition technology has been in use for the over 10 years, if you're thinking about, for example, police forces or uh, government services, uh, and these are probably not even the best facial recognition technology, right, in regards to accuracy. Um, but the premise has been used for quite some time, those technologies have been used. And so, you know, it, it is kind of hard for us to keep track of what services is using what, per se, um, and the private sector plays a huge role in also um, working with facial recognition technology within office spaces or, as I noted, Casinos are a really big place for it, and so it's pretty much everywhere. In many ways, we have facial recognition technology connected to our social media apps, like on Instagram, right? The filters, that's facial recognition technology being used, and so it is quite a big part of our everyday life. Yeah. And do you have a sense that there, there, there's really almost any efforts to provide some kind of notice, much less consent, about the use of these kinds of technologies? So you walk into a casino, I'm not one to walk into casinos yeah. usually, but uh, when you walk in or you walk into many other kinds of environments where there are cameras, there oftentimes are notifications, sometimes they're a little bit hidden or obscure, but nevertheless, oftentimes there's at least some sort of notification that you may be filmed. Mm -hmm. 
do, do you know, are there instances where there are at least some kind of notification to let you know not just you're being filmed, but we have the technology to try to use that to now match your face to a database that actually may allow us to identify who you are? No, there isn't an identifier, right? And I think that shows the concern of what surveillance could look like moving forward, just given the amount of, for example, CCTV cameras we have around, right? Um, and, you know, the fact that you already have these technologies existing in our everyday experiences, and then the added layer of facial recognition technology to intensify the possibilities of being, for example, identified. Um, so it allows for very little anonymity in spaces, and there isn't a, a clear identifier. We struggle with even identifying when you're being filmed, right? So, you know, can you imagine also being like, hey, you're not only being filmed, but also this is going through a facial recognition technology, and like, we might have not tested that facial recognition technology too much, so uh, best of luck as you move forward, you know, I think it show, it poses a lot of questions of like, what do we want to see moving forward, right? Because this is just being added upon the existing technologies that exist. Yeah, I mean, speaking of adding upon, how does, how does a company like Clearview, from what we know, mm -hmm. create a database to begin with that has millions or billions of, of images to be used in some of these kinds of systems? Well, I think, you know, the scary side of um, the Clearview story was that they did data scraping of social media platforms. So, in that process, they were getting photos from Facebook, from um, Instagram, from Twitter, just a massive scraping of photos, which obviously always poses the question if that's okay or not, right? Do we consent when we are posting our photo on Facebook for it to then be used in an additional database? That's a, a constantly in contention of, you know, but in many ways it is legal. Um, and so Clearview, you know, essentially from what we know based off of the reports is that they did a massive data scraping of all these platforms, which allow, and this various platforms, and then also purchased a bunch of purchased databases as well, which meant that their data sets were up to a billion photos, which allowed for them to have quite great accuracy. I think one of the examples they provide is like, if someone had posted a photo and you were even in the background, right, you were able to identify that person. That's how good it was. Um, and so I think that it brings, once again, another question of how do we feel about our photos when they're posted on social media? We kind of have very little leeway when they're posted on social media uh, to say that we have agency over them, to be honest, we don't. And so, um, you know, Clearview did, I think, what other companies wanted to do but didn't do because it, it is a bit of a weird legal space to be placed in um, even though it is allowed uh, and so I think that's why they hyper focused on the police force as their as a public safety um, position instead of it being within a privatized company for example other companies being able to use it right and it was striking I mean, just to one more piece on on the issue of notification I mean it was striking that once the story came out the recognition that police forces were where they had focused some of their marketing uh, initiatives that from a Canadian perspective the questions began to be asked and it, mm -hmm. initially as I understand it police forces were pretty quiet about it and then all of a sudden there was just this avalanche in fact in my own case I'd received a call from the Ottawa citizen uh, wanting to ask me some questions because the Ottawa police force had just advised them that in fact they had they had, you had a test case of using this and between scheduling the interview and having the interview a couple of hours later we had several other police forces come forward with the same information so there was clear coordination around this issue yeah. which does suggest that pretty widespread use in Canada which I understand the privacy commissioner of Canada now says is going to investigate. 
Yeah, and I think what's super interesting about that is facial recognition technology was already being used by the police beforehand, right? They were using other sets of technology, but not Clearview. And I think that the creepiness of Clearview for a lot of folks was the fact that it had one billion photos in their database and how they had scraped that information. I do not know what the other facial recognition technologies are because in most cases, police forces do not have to disclose the exact technologies that they're using. Um, but it, it's interesting that it's already been something that they've been using, but just the idea of how creepy but also aware we are now of these kind of tools, I think allowed for people to be like, hey, wait a second, right? Like, I know you might have been using facial recognition technology before, but Clearview, that's not okay, right? And so I think it's really making us question, like, what are we okay with and not okay with for the purpose of public safety? And also it showed that a lot of police chiefs did not know that their police officers were experimenting with it. So Toronto Police was in a weird situation where they had to like recant their earlier statements because they didn't even know that people were experimenting, which means that Clearview was probably finding very specific ways of getting folks to experiment with their technology, which is also a concern in itself. Yeah, I know that's remarkable to know that part of the police force knows what's happening in another part, including at the leadership level, may not be aware of it. You mentioned that, that Clear, Clearview's accuracy in the they argue, with such a large database that can be very accurate. But you also mentioned when you were touching on some of the concerns, there are concerns around accuracy and bias. Can, can you unpack a little bit what we do know about some of the bias concerns that can arise in the context of these technologies? Yeah, so one of the greatest concerns about facial recognition technology is the fact that it does not work well on dark skin. Uh, so it can misidentify um, on darker skins. And the interesting stance I actually have on this, and I've thought about this quite a bit, is that I actually don't want it to get better. You know what I mean? Like, we does not need to get better at scanning our faces. I think we have to have a stance at some point that we don't actually need this to be used at all. Um, and the concern is often about that bias of the fact that it does not capture skin properly, but also that it's just not always as accurate. So you're coming on an assumption that this person is who they think they are, but it, it is actually not accurate. Um, and so I think that those bias concerns have been used, but I think we're now in a different place where I think people are uncomfortable with the technology, period. Right, and so how how do we have those conversations of maybe we don't need to make anything better so it's used, but we actually might not need to use it at all. Yeah, so the idea that fixing the shortcomings isn't the answer, it's talking about whether or not we should be using the technology at all or at least under which circumstances. Have there been instances, speaking of the shortcomings of the technology though, where bias has played a role? Are, are people, mis have people been misidentified or studies that show misidentification and then some sorts of harms or, or other kinds of wrongdoing that might arise to some of those individuals because of the use of these sorts of technologies? Yeah, so from what we know that the major misidentifications have been around the police force. So, um, so but the thing is, a lot of them do their due diligence to make sure they're like double, triple checking. Um, and so, you know, there has been cases where you misidentify the person um, from what I from what I've read and that, uh, it, you know, they have to prove their like who they are uh, compared to what is being provided by the facial recognition technology. Um, and so there has been instances of that. Um, we don't even know, um, there hasn't been a lot of research on it, but I think we're all really curious to see what have been the instances of bias that has occurred within the private sector 
collector that might not be reported on, which is a little bit harder to keep uh, track of, of like who, you know, might have been stopped at a store or, you know, those instances of possible like, you know, racism or bias that occurs um, is not something that's as tracked. And I think most people are quite curious to see because facial recognition technology is also used within private institutions, um, uh, whether it be shopping malls or as I keep bringing up the casino example, but like it's, it's in many private institutions. So I think that's also something where I think a lot of us are curious and seeing, especially in the Canadian context, like what what has it caused? Because we don't know right now. Yeah. So, so given some of these concerns, uh, both in terms of the incidents, incidents that we do know, and then of course some, as you mentioned, we may not even know that kind of the the fact that there may be misuse, there may be bias, there there may be harms that are arising with its use, but they're largely hidden from view, and there's really no good way of identifying it. You mentioned that that some places have taken the the proactive step of banning the use of the technology. Can you expand a little bit on how some governments, either mm-hmm. local or at even higher level, uh, have what, what steps they've taken to address these kinds of concerns? Yeah, so we've seen uh, the first wave um, of uh, creating a ban um, and almost like a moratorium as well uh, was actually in Northern California. So you had Berkeley, Oakland, San Francisco all pushing for bans of usage within public service. It's important to know it's within public service. This is not has not like nothing to do with the private sector. Um, and then we also saw things happening out of uh, Massachusetts. Um, you know, New York is looking at examples, Jersey, um, and then so I think that has really, sh- there's been a kind of like a wave of advocacy that has allowed for that to happen because just people do not know like what are the impacts completely, right? Because as I said, it's hard to track the harms, right? And so someone might not even know that the reason why they were stopped was because of a facial recognition technology that was used on top of a CCTV camera. Like, so they may not be notified of that. So it's harder to track the harms per se. And so what we're seeing is like a wave, especially locally um, in local governments of just banning it completely and having a pause. And, and a good example is also Clearview AI is actually not being used now with the Toronto police force, right? So they came out and said that they are actually pausing uh, the usage of Clearview AI. I'd be curious to know if they're pausing the rest of the facial recognition technology that they use, but for Clearview, AI, I think because of the, the very bad press that was tied to it, everyone's kind of doing a pause there, but it's inspiring places that may have not thought about a ban before to push for a ban, and that's partly why Taylor and I wrote the piece that we did. Sure. So we've seen that happen locally in the United States. Anything in Canada yet other than you know, sort of the one-offs where a particular vendor might not be used, but anything broader in terms of what a locality may have said, we don't want to see this used in our public space at all. Uh, so we have not had like any clear stances. Uh, we have organizations like Open Media that is pushing for a pause and moratorium on facial recognition, and they're trying to push locally and federally and provincially as well. But we, I have, I have not seen an actual specific announcement from any city just yet. Uh, but I do believe given the smart city conversations that are happening all across the country, that we will probably be seeing more local advocacy about bans okay. uh, moving forward. So the approach has been generally say, we just won't use the technology or at least have our police forces or other local government services use them. Mm-hmm. Um, where is the discussion at in, at a higher level in terms of saying, we've got concerns about the development of this technology, we want to see some kind of regulatory structure, some kind of data governance around both how you build these databases and then how they get used. 
so I think around the facial recognition technology part, I don't think there has been a hyper focus, especially in the Canadian market. Um, I think we've obviously seen conversations around biometric, uh, which you know can play similar discourse uh, to facial recognition. Uh, but I have not seen um, a larger regulatory conversation. I, I think partly because these are emerging technologies that, uh, based off of the top, like based off of what is popular, is what we're talking about. So biometric was popular for a period of time, and that's why you know those conversations occurred. And so I think that we're in a position now to talk more about um, what is possible moving forward. And also, the Office of the Privacy Commissioner has been keeping track of it, right? It has been keeping track and trying to do privacy impact assessments as the technologies come up, especially around facial recognition technology. And so I think that, I think we're in a space now to possibly have a conversation about regulatory, because I think that, I think the question here is not always about making the technology better. Right, and I think that is the uncomfortable conversation that I think we're we're moving towards, not just around facial recognition technology, but also a lot of emerging technologies that are popping up. Mm -hmm. So um, that's partly why you know Taylor and I, when we wrote the piece, uh, we're really trying to play it into the digital charter conversations that had been posed by the Liberal government, uh, because this actually plays into trust. Right, what is deemed trustworthy in this conversation, and. Um, how do we ensure that we are either keeping track of how it's built, but also how it's used, or if it should be used at all? I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the, the Canada's digital charter. That there's certainly been uh, increasing focus on what the government might do when it comes to privacy and data governance, and that charter tries to to go beyond just pure privacy. Although certainly privacy reforms a pretty big part of that mm -hmm. discussion. How optimistic are you that the federal government? not just can move forward with this, but can adopt a, a forward-looking approach in a, in a space where technology tends to move far faster than government typically can or does? Um, I think I'm actually feeling quite optimistic, oddly enough, and the reason why is because I think now more than ever before, the public knows. So I think the fact that the public is well, like way more aware of the issue kind of puts people on their toes a little bit, right? Um, so people are asking questions, right? So I think even right now as like we're experiencing, you know, privacy moder like modernization, um, you know, people are going to ask and people are going to be curious. And I think that allows for a lot more accountability of like what we want to see moving forward. So I, I am optimistic. I just worry uh, sometimes that we are doing the work case by case instead of having still even like grounding values of what we think is important first uh, before even having the conversations about specifically facial recognition technology, specifically biometric information. I think we haven't, I think we're skipping steps here, right? And I think we have not had the value-based conversations first that might actually scrap even the usage of facial recognition technology, right? Like if we actually had the broader value-based conversation of what people are thinking about, especially around privacy, I'm assuming a lot of these technologies would not be in use, right? Um, and if they are in use, it would be a very restricted uh, approach or just public safety. And even then, I think people are questioning, questioning the public safety stance, right? And so I think the skipping of the step um, has made us kind of race uh, you know, race against the issue instead of actually being ahead of the issue. Um, and so I am optimistic that as the public is more aware and the accountability is hopefully greater, that we are going to have 
the value-based conversations that actually create a foundation of what we should be doing moving forward um, instead of just constantly having to race against the emerging technologies. It's because like it will not be possible. There, there's going to be too many technologies that are going to exist and that we will not be able to even keep track of, right? And so there has to be some foundation of what is okay and not okay in the spectrum, right? And obviously we have it in the Privacy Act of what is okay and not okay, but even, even then, you know, as the emerging technologies like come into play, it gets a little bit messy. And so I, I think that that's what I'm optimistic for is the value-based conversations that hopefully we could continue to have. All right. So what, what, I, what I think I'm hearing is that you'd like to see a pause on the use of these technologies mm -hmm. right now and then use that as an opportunity yeah. to engage in, in essentially setting the, the, the framework, the foundation, the sort of data governance related issues based upon the sorts of values that we have and sort of say this is this is how we th how we, regardless of the specific technology, ought to be applying some of our values and priorities from a governance perspective. Exactly, um, because I think right now we're just we are not being proactive. Right now we're just racing against the issues. Right, like it is we're headbutting at every point, um, not necessarily knowing if something like everything's in a gray area of some way, shape, or form. And so I think that. Um, we need to start figuring out whether it's values, whether it's principles. You know, there's always a joke about, <laughs> there's always a joke, right, about Canadian values and like, what is our Canadian values? <laughs> and I think that's something that we need to discover, especially as the digital ecosystem um, becomes a huge part of our everyday lives as it is right now. I was recently at a private roundtable that the Minister of Industry put on, focusing on the digital charter, and it, it was attended by uh, a number of academics and civil society groups, but but also by a large number of of industry representatives, and it became readily apparent that you have those different perspectives and pressure, or at least the perspective from industry, that both there there needs there is a role for these technologies, there is a role for innovation here as well, and so that coming in with what sometimes gets viewed as a regulatory hammer mm -hmm. uh, has consequences that can can be negative from an economic perspective. We may say that's simply the cost of. Of, of ensuring that the values we have get imbued within our policies, but nevertheless, there is a, a price to be paid there. And there was also a perspective from some that, that Canada is an important country to be sure, but we play in a global ecosystem here. Mm -hmm. And I guess I, I'm wondering your thoughts on to what extent do you think Canada can track its own way, have a, a made in Canada solution, so to speak, when we've got obviously the United States right next door, a purveyor and developer of many of these technologies, where we've got the Europeans, which have begun to try to chart their own course, mm -hmm. um, and they've been doing so in a number of different policy documents, but the European perspective may not be the Canadian one either. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you think there is that scope for Canadian-based policies that in some respects differ from some of our major trading partners. Yes, and I think one of the difficulties I had even last year, I remember this, is that Canada invests heavily in the tech like ecosystem here, right? So whether it be green technology, AI, etc., there is a power with that. And I think the power is why can't we be pushing for more privacy enhancing technology from the get go as like you people doing the work early on to make sure that it matches set data standards, set governance standards so that you never have to have an issue moving forward. Right. I think that is that is the power play that could be done in a market that is small enough but not small enough but also like still plays with international actors 
Um, and I am often disappointed when that's not used, right? Because we're investing so heavily. Like our taxpayer dollars are being used to invest in tech jobs all across the country, but we're not using that opportunity as like, hey, how do you make it more privacy enhanced, right? How, how do you play a role in actually collecting less data and doing really well with the less data, for example? I think that's where Canada can play a role, right? Is maybe setting standards as they as they give actual you know massive investments um, providing that kind of scope when they give massive massive investments uh, so that you know we are leading in leading in privacy enhancing technology or technology that is what we actually want to see moving forward right and I, a good example of that is i remember there was a period of time actually after cambridge analytica that people became super obsessed with privacy enhancing technology so then there were massive investments being made in privacy enhancing technology including omer's ventures here in canada investing in DuckDuckGo, right um and you know there was also signal for example um open whisper system signal is an encrypted uh, messaging tool got a 50 million 50 million dollar investment from the WhatsApp founder, Brian Acton. And so I think that there has been a trend towards building technologies that are actually better for us as we move forward and are providing alternatives and are doing well. For example, DuckDuckGo does not need investments from Omer's Ventures. They are actually financially okay by themselves at this moment without investments, right? And it proves that it is possible to have, there is a, there is a market for better technologies. The only thing is, what does it mean for it to be better technology in the Canadian context, I don't know. Like, I don't know what our made in Canada good values are just yet, but I think that is what's possible moving forward, just given the fact that the bet is going to be on the tech sector economically moving forward. If that's the bet, how do we use that bet uh, around job creation, et cetera, to ensure that we are building better technologies and not just technology for technology's sake? You know, and that's why I think that's a, that's a great way to close. It's the sort of question that hasn't been asked enough. We invested heavily in the, the super clusters, for example, focusing on leadership globally in jobs, not as much on the kinds of technologies that might emerge. And putting that question forward and then tying it into the facial rec recognition technologies strikes me as a really positive way to be thinking about some of these issues. Yeah, and just recognizing that as we move forward, uh, the government of Canada has a lot more power than it gives itself credit for, and that we are collectively trying to figure out, hopefully, what we want to see. And it's not saying that those technologies don't exist, right? It's saying that there are ways that we can make these technologies better. Let's have that conversation, and I think there's always a market for it. Um, and we are noticing that there's a market for it, and so how do we play into that? All right, great. Well, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Okay, thank you so much. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron Leboy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Mm -hmm.